Last week, we began Mark's gospel. And we said that this book asks one central question, who is Jesus? And Jesus himself answers that central question at the very center of the book. When he says, or he, he himself asks that question of his disciples and of the reader, who do you say that I am? Last week, we looked at the start of the book, how the arrival of Jesus was wrapped up in a ton of Old Testament prophecies and images. And we ended the week where we began this week. What happened right before the part where I read is Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, and the demon correctly identified who Jesus is. And so if you remember that this is a book that's meant to be read all at once, we can go right from that story to these stories about Jesus healing more people. And by the way, I encourage you, as we're going over this in the next couple of months, find 90 minutes a week to read the entire book of Mark in one sitting from start to finish. And so if we can, if we can remind ourselves that this is meant to be read as one complete story, we can see what the connection is between all of these kind of disparate little snapshots of what Jesus is doing. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together. God, we ask your blessing on this time. We ask that you would take this word and push it into our hearts, that you would drive it down deep into our guts, that you would use it to shape us and mold us into the people that you would have us be. We thank you for this time to gather together, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So every week we're going to be reading basically a chapter of Mark out loud. Um, Chapters and verses in the Bible are actually relatively new in terms of the history of the church. They certainly weren't part of the original writing. And so when, you, when you're reading the Bible, it's not like the original authors intended things to stop here and start there. Um, Old Testament chapters and verses date to about the 900s. New Testament chapters and verses date to about the 1400s. So this is basically what I'm saying is this is one long story that we are reading. Jesus begins his public ministry. And the interesting thing is, all of these things that Jesus is doing, all of these ways that he is breaking into the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God, all of these ways that he is doing supernatural things, he still is telling people to keep quiet about who he is. He's still trying to remain under the radar. The first time that Jesus came, he was not riding on a cloud shining like the sun. He came in secret in the middle of the night. That's when he was born. His birth was announced to the blue-collar workers of the neighborhood, shepherds. And then it was announced to Gentile scholars, probably hundreds of miles away. And so everything was done to keep Jesus' earthly ministry quiet. And we see that in in the first part of this work that Jesus is doing, he is at great pains to not have people identify who he really is. And so last week we heard, he said to the demon, be quiet and come out of him. Because the demon was saying, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus cast him out and said, you can't say that yet. We don't want anyone to know who I am. Last week, we said that the whole book is attempting to answer a question. Who is Jesus? And Mark answers it in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the, the Son of God. This week, we hear a different question being asked in the end of Mark 1 and the beginning of Mark 2. Maybe you noticed it as it was being read out. There's one question that gets asked over and over and over again. Four times, Jesus is asked the same question, almost once per story. The scribes, the Pharisees, the people that are around him, 
They all sound like our two-year-old toddler, Gus. Anyone who has a toddler, I know I'm not breaking any ground here, but sometime around two, two and a half, they get a new favorite word, and it's their favorite question to ask, why? It's the most common word in our house the last couple weeks. Anytime one of us says anything, Gus will say why. And so as we read these stories, each of them contains someone asking why. Why did, and they're constantly saying to Jesus, why are you doing the things that you're doing? Why aren't you doing these other things? And it's interesting because as, as I'm reading this, I found myself this week asking myself, why? Why did Mark choose town to write these stories out of all the stories that Peter probably told about Jesus's life? And why did Mark put them down in this order? What is he trying to show us about who Jesus was and what he came to do? Well, for one thing, we see that Jesus came to heal. For a second, we see that Jesus came to eat. And it would seem that the third thing is that Jesus came to argue. What we've seen already and what we'll really start to see in the next two chapters is that Jesus really likes to get into debates with the ruling authorities of the day. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of God, the gospel, that is it very much at odds with the status quo. And so as a result of this, he got into a lot of discussions with people. He had a whole lot of people questioning why he was saying what he said and why he was doing what he did. And how he would answer that question really surprised them. Like, it can't be denied. Each of the questions why that they asked Jesus throughout this gets a little, a little back talk from him. Each one of these interactions gives us a little bit more of an insight into his ministry because it constantly upsets categories. Categories of the day for proper etiquette, the proper way to do things, for religious observance, for how the people of God are supposed to behave. And in each case, someone asks Jesus why, and he uses it to give them a glimpse into the kingdom. It's always one of my favorite Bible statistics. Um, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is asked 187 questions by people. And he answers them in terms of like giving a straight answer. He answers three of them. 187 questions, three answers. But this always, this always kills me. Um, He's asked 187 questions, and what he does in response is he asks back 307 questions in return. So I want to look at these four questions that people are asking of Jesus as we start to see what the shape of this king is. In chapter 1, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus and the paralytic. It's a great story of faith and healing. It's a great story of forgiveness and what's on the outside and what's on the inside. Jesus is presented with this man who can't walk. He might not even be able to move. And his friends are so sure that Jesus can help him. And they are so desperate to get to see this man that they actually take a piece out of the roof of the house and they lower him down so that they can place him right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man who is clearly in physical need. And we've already seen that Jesus can heal. And he reaches out to him and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And it's actually kind of jarring when you first read it because it's like, okay, so Jesus, we're, we're not going to deal with the very physical need that we have right in front of us here. The guy can't move. He gets lowered down through a roof and the first thing Jesus said is, your sins are forgiven. It's shocking. But Jesus knew that the real issue in the man's life, not just the presenting issue that was clear to everybody else, he knew that the real issue in the man's life 
was his soul. His soul needed to be healed first. If a guy comes into the ER with a broken arm, but the doctor treating him realizes that he also has an internal condition that's about to kill him, he's probably going to deal with the broken arm afterward. We really have to treat this con- the internal condition first. We need to get to the heart of it. And so Jesus addresses the real problem, forgiveness. And that in and of itself isn't what upset the religious leaders. The scribes of the Pharisees who were there, we're going to see these people a lot. They follow Jesus around. And these guys knew the Old Testament. They knew that their God, that Yahweh, was a forgiving God, that he would set their sins as far as the east is from the west. But they also knew that it was only God, Yahweh, who had the power to forgive sins. And so even though it's easy to demonize these people, the scribes of the Pharisees, I can understand it because they've read the Bible. They knew that only God can forgive sins. And so to me, it's understandable that they were up in arms, that they said, what is he doing? He's blaspheming. I mean, the, the, the audacity that it takes to stand up there and say, I forgive you, to basically put yourself in the place of God. Think about it this way. Every week, I stand here as a priest in Christ's church, and I pronounce absolution for the forgiveness of sins. We do confession and absolution every week, but I never do it on my own authority. The church is very clear. I am here as a representative of the church. I am a representative of the authority that Christ gave to his church through the apostles. Jesus said, whenever you forgive sins in my name, they will be forgiven. So can you imagine the looks that I would get if I stood up here after confession and I said, in the name of Jay Trailer, on my own authority, I forgive you. You'd think I was nuts and you'd be right to think it. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He is standing up in front of this man. He is saying, on my own authority, I forgive you. As another outwardly way of proving who, another outward way of proving who Jesus was. He forgives them in the presence of people. And the people are enraged. But then, to further prove who he is, to remind them that that the miracles and the forgiveness go hand in hand, he heals the guy anyway. And he asks them a great question in in return. They say, how are you doing this? You're blaspheming. And he said, well, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to tell someone, rise, pick up your bed, and go home? It's easier to say the first one. Because you can't, see the results of it. I mean, I can say to you, your sins are forgiven, and there's no outward change. So he says the one that's easier to say first, but then he says the hard one, and that gets proven out, right? Like the guy actually stands up and he he goes home. But which of those is really easier to pull off? Actually granting someone forgiveness for their sins? That's the job of only one person in the whole universe, and one person alone. Only God can forgive sins. So which one really is easier? Do you see the bind that he's putting these scribes in? It's no wonder that they started to grumble against him. Let's look at the next why question that he's asked. In chapter 2, verse 16, Jesus calls another disciple. He's already called a few in chapter 1. He's walking along in chapter 2, and he calls another disciple to him. And, And don't miss this, because no detail in Mark is unimportant. It's a very short book, and everything in there is intentional. Where was Levi sitting? He was sitting in the tax booth. What kind of person immediately after that was, did Jesus handpick when he saw him? Handpick to be one of his disciples, his apostles, his inner circle. 
a tax collector. And then the scribes grumble about him. And they ask this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. And here's these scribes again, the guys who knew the Bible, and they're asking themselves, why does he eat with these sinners? Who were tax collectors at that time? Tax collectors were traitors to their nation, traitors to their brothers and sisters, traitors to their fellow Jews. They were people who were aligning themselves with the oppressive Roman Empire for their own gain. That's who the tax collectors were. They were hated. And who are the sinners that he's talking about? It doesn't say, but the theory has always been that it's probably a collection of thieves and prostitutes, basically people who don't matter. And shouldn't the scribes have known their Bible? Because they said, how are you eating? How, how is it that you're not eating with righteous people? How are you eating with these tax collectors and sinners? In Psalm 14, in Psalm 53, we hear over and over again that there is, in God's eyes, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. But these scribes, these Pharisees, the, the religious elite of the day, they have set themselves up as the exception to this rule. So why wouldn't this, this new rabbi, this Jesus, this guy who's gaining all this fame and following, why wouldn't he want to hang out with us? Why would he go hang out with traitors and with crooks? The reason is because they knew who they were. Jesus said, I didn't come to, he- I didn't come to, to save the righteous. I came to save sinners. Those who, think th- those who are well... I mean, he's being sarcastic here. Those who think themselves well don't need to go to the doctor. Remember the good news that Jesus preached? What he said was last week, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And so if you think that you don't have anything to repent of, you're probably not going to be on board with Jesus' message. If you think that, that keeping all the law and the commandments perfectly, and even doing above and beyond what God requires in in the Old Testament, if you think that doing all that means that you have nothing to repent of, then you're not on board with Jesus' teaching or with his message or with his kingdom. The next why question, the next way that Jesus was upsetting this order of things that was in place, breaking in with his kingdom of God. In chapter 2, verse 18, this is about fasting. Basically, the the Pharisees say to Jesus, so why don't you guys fast? John fasts. John disciples fast. Why aren't you fasting? And Jesus gives them an answer that paints a beautiful picture of what we are all here for. Fasting is something that you do while you're waiting, while you're begging for God's presence and God's intervention. It is an act of penitence. But Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. That's what he said in chapter 1. The kingdom of God has come near. He's saying, I am the kingdom of God. And then he says to to the Pharisees, do the wedding guests fast when the groom is with them? Like, I'm here now. The party has actually begun. The feast has been set. This is Isaiah 25. It's Revelation 21. When God will wipe away every tear. And the feast will be spread. How can we even think of fasting when we are in the very presence, the physical presence of the living God? By the way, this is exactly why 
in, in, in our church, we do have a tradition of fasting still. Some churches don't because they believe that, that the idea of fasting has been set aside by Christ. We still see it as a really good discipline in times of penitence in our lives, in times where we are asking for God to intervene. But even in a, a full season of fasting like Lent, that's why every time we have a Sunday meeting, every time the church gathers together as the body of Christ, it's a feast day because we are in the presence of God when we are gathered together with one another. And then Jesus says a line to the Pharisees that you'll hear quoted a lot. He says that nobody puts a, a new piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. And he says nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, because new wine is made for fresh wineskins. We can see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is remaking people. He is physically healing people. We see evidence of that over and over and over. And he says this while he's gathered with his disciples, these people that he's just gathered from various places, and he is remaking them. The people are turning into new garments and new wineskins, a new way of living and different kinds of people. It means that Jesus is doing something that can't be fitted into the existing way of doing things. If people try to do that, they're going to have the worst of both worlds because now they're not going to have any wine and they're not going to have any wineskins. At least if they had tried to put old wine into old skins, they could have kept both. But the new wine, the good wine, is for new wineskins. And Jesus' wine has no place in the existing patterns that we want to set up in our lives. But, but why is that story right here? Why does it come here in the midst of all of this talk about disciples and his people who are gathered to him and, and feasting with them? They are the ones being remade. Because Jesus never talks about new structures or new policies or new procedures. What he wants to do, what he talks about all the time, is new people. The kingdom of God has come near, and people are being changed. Our friend Taylor Linhart put it this way in a song about this exact thing. She said, the empty healed, I'm sorry, the empty filled, the wounded healed, the broken back together, the poor are blessed, the weary rest, and we will dance forever. That's what Jesus is giving us. That's the power of the presence of the kingdom of God. In verse 24, they ask him another question. They ask him another why. And this one goes into the next chapter as well. Why don't you observe the Sabbath? Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And it's, it's like Jesus is saying over and over to people, here's how it works in the kingdom of God. The empty get filled, the wounded get healed, the broken get put back together. And he illustrates this. He said, I'm not... I'm not trying to get rid of the old rules. I'm trying to show you what they're really for. And he actually points back to Scripture. He does this with a reference to 1 Samuel 21. King David, who is on the run, he's hungry. His men are hungry. They don't have any food. And he goes into the tabernacle, where he's not supposed to be, and he does it on the Sabbath, which he's not supposed to do, and he grabs the, the bread of the presence, the sacrificial bread that's on the altar, which he's definitely not supposed to do, and he eats it. And that's only supposed to be for the priests, and David wasn't a priest. And then more than that, he not only ate it, he gave it to all of his friends, and they ate it too. And yet, God never rebukes him for this. He never sends a prophet 
like he does later. He never sends a prophet to tell him what he was doing wrong. God seems to be fine with this, even though it's in contradiction of a lot of God's rules. So what is going on here? Jesus is saying that the the laws that God set up for his people were intended to keep them holy, to keep them set apart, and to show them not only how they were supposed to live, but also what they lacked. God gave us the Sabbath for our rest, but God also put rules in place so that people couldn't have everything that they wanted all the time. And yet, all of these laws and all of these rules are for our good. And so, Jesus is illustrating a point here with talking about David and the bread of the presence and the fact that hungry, hungry people needed to eat. And yes, they weren't supposed to go in there, and yes, they weren't supposed to touch it, and yes, they weren't supposed to eat it. And yet, God has pr- promised that he will always provide for his people. Jesus here is saying, he's pointing back to David. He's pointing back to the great king who, through his line, was promised the Messiah. And that's no accident. And he's illustrating this point, that God is for his people and that God will always provide. And the last passage that we have here ties this all together. All these things that we're, that we're thinking about in chapter 2. It kind of puts a cap on this entire segment of Mark, the first two chapters. There's an encounter at the beginning of chapter 1. Where does it take place? Jesus rolls right up into the synagogue. He's in conflict with the scribes, the same as before. And we're presented with a man with, with a withered hand. Same as the leper. Same as the paralytic. People who were in physical pain and discomfort that desperately needed healing. We have Jesus healing. We have Jesus doing good. And we have Jesus making the kingdom of God visible for everyone around him to see. But he was doing it on the Sabbath. Same as he just did in the last passage. And so again, just like before, the scribes came to him with a bunch of why questions. And Jesus gives them an incredible answer about who this God is and what he has come to do. Jesus said to them that man was not made for the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was made for man. It's possible to to write whole books tracing the idea of Sabbath through the entire Bible. A lot of people have. There was a Sabbath that God took at the beginning of creation, right? First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, and then on the seventh day he rested. But in all of those first six days, there was a little cap on the end of the day, and it was evening and it was morning the first day, and it was evening and it was morning the second day. At the end of the seventh day, you don't get that. And there's a lot of theologians, and I agree with them, who say that that illustrates that for, for God, from God's perspective on his creation, the seventh day never ended. That God is our Sabbath, that he provides for us. God is giving us to, giving this to us. The entirety of creation is part of the rest that he gives us. And he says, guard it, treasure it, set it apart. I gave this to you. The Sabbath is a gift. It is not a burden. Even in the Ten Commandments, Jesus reminds his people again to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Guard it. Set it apart. This is a gift. I gave it to you. Treasure it. But by Jesus' day, it had become a bunch of legalistic rule-keeping on what you could and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. But the scribes, these, these Old Testament experts, they should have known. The Sabbath doesn't mean that we are so burdened by the commands of God that we stop acting like the people of God for one day every week. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 4, 
it says that if your friend's donkey falls into a ditch, help him. Help him get the donkey out. In Exodus 23, verse 4, it says that if your enemy's ox falls into a ditch, help him get it out. And so here, Jesus is living out the commandments of God. The commandments that if if Mark is correct, and if Jesus is God, the commandments that he himself had written and given to his people. But he was doing it in such a way that flew in the face of what people had become used to. Because it is so easy in all of our lives to read the Bible verse by verse by verse by verse, granularly. It's easy to do this in every aspect of life, to look at just one little thing and not consider the whole picture. And so if you look at the idea that we're supposed to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and if you don't look at the entire sweep of what the commands of God are for his people, it's easy to miss that, yes, we are not to do any work that day because we it's a day where we trust that God will provide for us. But if something terrible happens to your neighbor, help him. If you see someone in need, it is not breaking the Sabbath to help him. And so I just want to add, I, I want us to think about that this week. Living out the commandments of God will often fly in the face of what people have become used to. It was true back then, and it's true now. Living out the commandments of God does not mean that we are bound and restricted in what we can do in life. It means that we are actually actually given structure to free us. It means that we have been shown the way that life works best. And this is fully embodied in what Jesus is talking about here. Living out the commandments of God will fly in the face of what people have become used to. I mean, God says to give 10% of everything that you make back to him right off the top. That is insane by the world's standards, even by the most generous people. It's crazy. God says that that we shouldn't get to sleep with whoever we want, but that we should help out people who hate us. That looks nuts to anyone with kind of a a secular moral, moral relativist view. It looks crazy. And to the scribes of his day, what Jesus was doing was not just weird, it wasn't just counterculture. It was blasphemous. They were saying, you are upsetting this whole thing that God himself has instituted. They forgot that they had added so much to it that it was now no longer recognizable. But that's what we do in the kingdom of God. We, we do what Jesus does. He called us to be his disciples, his, his followers, his imitators. And so we live the way that Jesus would have us live. And we take in the entirety of Scripture and we look at it and we say, okay, how does this affect the choices that I make in my day-to-day life? And you can imagine his disciples, these random people that he has called to himself, seeing him do these things, hearing him teach, watching him heal, and, and being absolutely amazed. But I have to think that every once in a while they would look at each other and go, is this okay? Because this none of this is what, what the... Uh, what the scribes and the Pharisees told us to do. Are we sure that this guy's okay? And sometimes that's easy for me to do too. It's easy for me as I, as I, read, as I read the Bible, as I think about the, the mission that God has for his people in his world, as I think about the way that he would have us live for his glory and for the, for the good of others. And I say to myself, are we sure that this is right? Are we sure this is okay? Shouldn't we just maybe think about going with with the wisdom of the day. 
There seems to be a lot of smart people out there. But then I'm reminded that this world has a king, and his name is Jesus. This is the same Jesus who was present at the creation of the world. It's the same Jesus who wrote down the Ten Commandments. It's the same Jesus who has been with his people from the very beginning and promises to be with them until the end of time. And so if he is the king and if he does have a kingdom, then we need to do what he calls us to do in the kingdom of God because he calls us to be his followers. And and what's the world's response to all this? The, The scribes, the Pharisees, the power structures of the day. This comes at the end of, it's chapter 3, verse 6, and this caps off these first two chapters of Mark. When the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who knew the Old Testament better than anybody else, when they see this man who is healing, who is teaching with his own authority in a way that nobody had ever heard when he is opening up God's word to them, what did they do? Did they say, we want to follow you? Did they say, let us bow down and worship you? No. The religious leaders of the day immediately went and met with the political leaders of the day, and they talked about how to kill him. Following Jesus is is costly. But if we know what God commands of us and expects of us, if we know what God has already done for us and promises to do for us, if we realize that we are sinners and not perfect righteous people, if we repent, we turn away from our old actions, we are changed into those new garments. We are made into new wineskins and we receive the new wine of Christ. We are renewed and become followers of Christ. And then we are guests at his wedding. Forgiven, restored, and renewed. And that's the feast. That's the feast that we all get to go to. We are filled, we are healed, we are put back together as we follow him. Let me pray. God, would you take your word and make it alive in our hearts as we reflect on these little snippets, these little snapshots of who you are and what you did, would you build us a full picture of your kingdom in our mind? Would you make us hungry for more of you? Would you draw us more into who you would have us be? And at those times where we want to look at each other or look at ourselves and say, why? Or are we sure about this? Would you give us the security of your peace and your rest, Lord? In Christ's name, amen.